One of the strongest arguments that the Bible is indeed the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God is that it predicts the future with absolute accuracy. Now, it's true that there are other religions in the world in which their sacred writings contain a a small number of vague predictions, but I want you to know these predictions are so vague, they're so unclear that it's absolutely impossible to determine exactly what they are, let alone if they've ever really been fulfilled. But that's not the case with the Bible. See, the Bible is special. The Bible is unique amongst all the books in the world in that it makes scores of predictions. And when it makes a prediction, that prediction is crystal clear. And it is always, it always comes true because God is faithful Almost one-third of the Bible is of a predictive nature, and those predictions never fail to be fulfilled. And the reason for this is because God is the author of Scripture. It all originates with Him. All Scripture is God-breathed out, and He knows everything, including the future, so that when He predicts something, He not only knows that it will come to pass, but He has the power to bring it to pass. Listen to what the Lord himself says concerning his ability to make accurate predictions. Isaiah chapter 46, starting in the middle of verse 9 and then verse 10. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is precisely why we read in Scripture about some remarkable predictions that have already been fulfilled. For example, Scripture predicted that the patriarch, Abraham, he would be the father of a great nation, a large nation, when he didn't even have one son. But the Jewish people, both ancient and recent, are the living fulfillment of that prediction. In addition, the Bible predicted that the children of Israel, that nation that came out of the loins of Abraham, would be defeated by foreign powers, foreign nations, and its people taken into captivity, and that's exactly what happened. 180 years before the northern kingdom of Israel fell, the prophets predicted this would happen, and it did as the Assyrian Empire conquered them and took them out of the land. And 150 years prior to the southern kingdom of Judah falling, prophets, prophets like Isaiah, prophets like Jeremiah, they predicted it would happen, that there would be captivity, and it did, as Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar conquered them and took them into captivity. And concerning this captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah, God said that it would last for 70 years, and that's exactly how long It lasted. In fact, the Bible actually predicts the name. Get a load of this. The Bible predicts the name of the Persian king who would release the Jewish people from captivity and send them back to their homeland. Note this, 150 years before this man was even born. Isaiah 44 verse 28 says this, It is I who says of Cyrus... He's my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. In other words, God predicted that this man Cyrus, that that would be the name of the king of Persia who would enable the Jewish people to return from Babylon 
to their own land so that they could rebuild the city of Jerusalem and lay the foundation of the temple. And that's exactly what happened. Now, because this is such a remarkable prophecy, I mean, naming the name of a man, because this is such a remarkable prophecy, over the years it has been attacked by unbelieving liberal theologians. If they lived back in biblical days, they would be called false prophets, false teachers. But they're unbelieving liberal theologians, and they've scoffed at this. They said it can possibly be the case. It's too incredible to be valid. But in response to those who are skeptical of this, John MacArthur has written these words. He said, it was a good guess, you say? Are we to believe that the mother of Cyrus in later years read this prophecy and had a child whom she named Cyrus and whose life she then planned to fulfill prophecy? Not likely. She was a pagan. Surely she had no knowledge of such a prophecy. Neither she nor anyone could possibly guess that Cyrus was going to be king and release Israel. God said it and it happens. The Bible also predicts in the Old Testament, the Old Testament book of Daniel, with astounding accuracy, the rise and fall of four Gentile kingdoms that would dominate the nation of Israel until the second coming of Christ. Listen, Daniel's prophecies are so detailed, they are so precise that once again, Bible critics have argued for years that they couldn't possibly have been written until after these events took place. But they were written years prior to these events happening. Why? Because God knows the end from the beginning and he reveals what will take place in the future. And that's why I said earlier that fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest arguments for the divine authorship of the Bible. But as amazing as these prophecies are, there is a category within the realm of biblical prophecy that is truly astonishing. It is called messianic prophecy, meaning this, meaning predictions made about the coming Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave about 65 direct prophecies concerning the Jewish Messiah. But in addition, there were many others concerning him, which were given in different forms, a form of pictures like animal sacrifices, like the Jewish priesthood. And they are all prophecies that portray the Messiah. And the reason God gave so many prophecies about Messiah is so that when he did arrive on the scene, Israel would be able to recognize who he was. And so we read in the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah's birth predicting that he would be born of a virgin who would give birth to him in the rather insignificant tiny village of Bethlehem. And there are prophecies about his ancestral lineage, that he would come from the tribe of Judah and specifically the line of King David. In addition, the Old Testament predicts that the coming of Messiah would be preceded by a messenger who would prepare the people of Israel for his coming. And we know that that was fulfilled when John the Baptist arrived proclaiming a message of repentance. Jewish people were even told that their Messiah's ministry would be centered around the region, the area known as the Galilee, and it would be characterized by miracles in the form of supernatural healings. You can read about that in Isaiah 35. So these are just a sampling of the many specific and detailed prophecies that were made in the Old Testament about the Messiah and all fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so a very valid question, a very good question, a very 
I would say very realistic question to ask at this point is this, with all of these prophecies designed to reveal who the Messiah was, when he, when he finally did arrive, did the Jewish people of Christ's day recognize him as their Messiah? And the answer is that most did not, however some did. And the reason that most did not recognize him as Messiah is because the Bible says that there is an invisible veil that covers the eyes of the Jewish people that prevents them from seeing the truth about the Lord. We read about this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.15, where he writes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Meaning this, whenever the, any of the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, whenever they are read, there's a veil keeping the Jewish people from seeing the truth of their Messiah being Jesus. But the very next verse says, verse 16, we read, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, when the Lord lifts that veil, the Jewish people come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. Individuals come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And that's the reason that there were some, not the majority, but some Jewish people in our Lord's day who did believe in him. They recognized who he was. They did that because God sovereignly chose to remove the veils covering their hearts. And therefore, they clearly saw the truth about Jesus. That he is the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. And so, when Jesus began revealing himself to the men who would eventually become his apostles, they knew, they knew for certain that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies concerning Messiah. Why? Because the veil, the veils covering their hearts, their minds, their eyes, lifted by God. And that's why Philip, in telling Nathaniel about Jesus, he said this, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We finally found him and we know that he's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Years later, speaking to a group of Gentiles about Jesus, Peter said this, he said, Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And so some Jewish people, yes, they did see that Jesus was the one who fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecies, and these people believed in him. And so they became his first disciples. They formed the first church, the early church in Jerusalem. However, even those early believers who knew him to be the fulfillment of these prophecies, initially, initially, even they had a hard time when it came to accepting what God had predicted in the Old Testament about the Messiah's death. And I say that because in Luke chapter 24, we read about two of Christ's disciples who soon after the Lord's death were so completely devastated, and I don't think that's too strong of a word to use on them, devastated by his recent crucifixion that even when some other disciples told them that Jesus had risen from the dead and that they had actually seen him, they still didn't believe it. Now, it's to these two dejected disciples that Jesus appeared while they were traveling on a road to a village near the city of Jerusalem, a village called Emmaus. 
Initially, they didn't know it was him. God prevented them from recognizing him. But he appeared to them in order to explain that his death wasn't a plan gone bad. But rather, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. We pick up the story in Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women, some women amongst us, amazed us when they were in the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said to them that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now folks, this has been called the first Bible study of the Christian era. And can you imagine what it must have been like to be there and have a Bible study led by Jesus? Just incredible. Led by him as he went over the Old Testament scriptures pointing out to these men all the messianic prophecies concerning himself, including his death and resurrection. And no doubt one of the many scriptures that he must have explained to them is the psalm that I want to direct your attention to this morning as we prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's Supper. The psalm I'm referring to is Psalm 22, which I read earlier to you. Charles Spurgeon called this psalm the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours because it is a very, very detailed prophetic portrait of the coming Messiah's sufferings, agonizing sufferings while on the cross. Now over the last few months we have been working our way slowly but surely through this psalm just before we observed the Lord's Supper. We did something a little different last month because in 1 Corinthians it was actually the passage about the Lord's Supper. But normally I've been taking you through Psalm 22 before observing the Supper. And so I remind you that in looking back at the big picture of the psalm we see that David predicted that Jesus would suffer in several very specific ways. Previously in our studies, we've discovered the first two ways of, that our Lord suffered. The first one being this, he suffered by being rejected by God the Father. David begins Psalm 22 with the Messiah uttering these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason Jesus uttered these words, we know, is because while on the cross, he was being rejected 
forsaken by God the Father because he was being judged in the place of sinners. Therefore, he was treated by the Father as if he had committed all of the sins that all the people who would ever come to believe in him had committed. That's what was going on on the cross. This was the most dreadful type of suffering that Jesus endured. There's other suffering. We'll see more about that today. But this was the worst because for the first time and only time in eternity, remember Jesus is eternal. He's had no beginning. This is, this is way back as far as you can go. And then it goes further. For the first time in all of eternity, he was forsaken and he was abandoned by the Father. And the perfect fellowship that he had experienced up to this point, it was broken. Absolutely broken. Because God is holy and therefore he could not have fellowship. He could not have any benevolent relationship with Christ while he was bearing our sins in his body on the cross. But while this was indeed the worst kind of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross, it wasn't the only, wasn't the only kind of suffering that he went through. As David continues the psalm, he tells us about a second way that Jesus would suffer. In addition to being rejected by the Father, we learn that Jesus suffered by being insulted by men. Verses 7 and 8. All who see me sneer, at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now what we read here in these verses, and I'm just reviewing for you, what we read here in these verses is that the Jewish onlookers, that crowd of individuals who spurred on by their religious leaders, had urged Pontius Pilate to put Jesus to death. It was these people who followed him and the Roman soldiers to the place where Jesus was crucified. And standing there, looking up at the Lord as he was suspended above them, they taunted him with verbal insults and ridiculous facial gestures. Their hatred for him ran so deep that they, like immature schoolboys, mocked him by sticking out their tongues and, and shaking their heads back and forth as if to say his situation is absolutely hopeless. Then they yelled out blasphemous accusations against him, ridiculing him for not having faith in God and telling him that he had to commit himself to God if he expected to be rescued by God from the cross. But Jesus answered that charge by expressing to God in prayer that even though he was undergoing the agony of crucifixion, his faith in God had not wavered. He still had faith in him just as he always had faith in him from his earliest days. Notice what Jesus said to the Father as he affirmed his faith in him. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And because his trust as he's letting the Father know was still in him. Jesus proceeded then in verse 11 to ask God to help him. His faith was still in God. And here's what he said in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Knowing that all of his disciples had deserted him, Jesus asked the Father to be present and to come to his aid because he says, trouble is near and there is no one to help me. Now, the trouble that Jesus is referring to here, that is the third kind of suffering that David tells us 
Messiah was forced to endure while being crucified. So in addition to being rejected by the Father, in addition to being insulted by men, we now learn that Jesus suffered by being physically tortured by his enemies. Verses 12 and 13, and this is new territory for us. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Now with these words, our Lord explains the trouble that he was in. He had just said that I'm in trouble and I need your help. Be not far from me. Now he articulates what that trouble is. He tells us that wild beasts were surrounding him. He says that strong bulls from an area in Israel known as Bashan had encircled him and with mouths wide open, these beasts are ready to attack him like a roaring lion charging in for the kill. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's obviously describing his enemies in figurative language as wild, bloodthirsty creatures because there were no literal bulls or literal lions around the cross. No, the strong bulls of Bashan refer to the bulls who pastured on the very fertile fields of Bashan, an area in Israel known today as the Golan Heights. These specific bulls grew bigger and more powerful than, than other bulls because they were just well fed. And in comparing them to roaring lions, they're pictured as a pack of vicious beasts circling their victim, just ready to pounce on him and tear him apart. Now, who do these wild beasts acting like savage lions depict? Well, they're a description of the Roman soldiers who carried out Christ's execution by crucifying him. You see, in comparing them to strong bulls and roaring lions, Jesus is describing these men as powerful, as dangerous, brutish, violent. And they were exactly that. The Roman soldiers who were responsible for carrying out the crucifixion of Jesus, these men were tough, sin-hardened men. Men who had lots of battle experience in killing others with absolutely no compassion upon their victims. As you'll recall from the New Testament accounts of Christ's Roman trial, prior to crucifying Jesus, these same Roman soldiers abused our Lord by beating him, mocking him, making sport of him, all to the delight of the onlooking Jewish crowd. So we read these words in Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed, and began to beat him on the the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Concerning this physical abuse, one scholar wrote this. He said, some of these same soldiers were undoubtedly part of the group who had arrested Jesus in Gethsemane the previous night. Still, they probably had little knowledge of who he was. As far as they were concerned, he was just one in a long line of religious zealots who had troubled the peace and made problems for Rome. They undoubtedly assumed that he deserved whatever ridicule and torment they could heap on him. Condemned Roman prisoners were considered fair game for such abuse, as long as they were not killed before the sentence of crucifixion could be carried out. The soldiers' abuse of Jesus was probably not motivated by any personal animosity towards him, 
but it was nonetheless wicked in the extreme. The soldiers had become experts at such mockery, having overseen so many executions, but rarely did they have such enthusiastic crowds to play to. They evidently decided to make the most of it. And folks, make the most of it, these men did, as they treated Jesus with horrible cruelty. But the worst was still to come. Having slapped, beaten him, spit on him, mocked him, we read in the Gospel of Matthew that after that they brought him to a place outside of the city of Jerusalem called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and it was there that they crucified Jesus. And continuing Psalm 22, we hear Jesus describing, he describes himself, how the crucifixion was physically affecting him. We read in verses 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Now, having described the Roman soldiers as wild beast. Jesus now describes his own physical condition as a result of being crucified by these beast-like Roman soldiers. He says that he is poured out like water. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that he's absolutely drained of all of his strength. All of his energy is gone. He's like a cup of water that's been poured out and it's now just empty. He continues to describe his physical condition while on the cross by saying that all of his bones are out of joint, which is precisely the way that crucified victims felt because after being hoisted on the beams of the cross, the cross would then be dropped into a deep post hole and the weight of that drop would cause such a jarring motion to the body that the victim would feel his joints being twisted out of their natural positioning. But not only was his physical body undergoing intense agony, but he also says, notice that he says, his heart is like wax. It's melted within me. By which he seems to mean that his courage has melted away. Like wax melting under the heat of an intense sun. In other words, he's saying that his will to live is ebbing away as he hangs on the cross and undergoes such horrendous pain and suffering. You see, the Roman government, while not the inventors of crucifixion as a means of execution, they had developed it. They'd taken it to a new level of pain so that it brought just this incredible pain to its victims. Writing in his book, The Murder of Jesus, and if you don't have that, you should get it. The Murder of Jesus, John MacArthur explains something of the torture that a crucified sufferer just had to endure. He writes, the Romans had perfected the art of crucifixion in order to maximize the pain. Understand that. That was their goal. And they knew how to prolong the horror without permitting the victim to lapse into a state of unconsciousness that might relieve the pain. The victim of crucifixion would experience waves of nausea, fever, intense thirst, constant cramps, and incessant throbbing pain from all parts of the body, sleeplessness, hunger, dehydration, and worsening infection all took their toll on the victim's body and spirit as the process of crucifixion dragged on, usually for three days or so. The feeling of utter hopelessness, the public shame, and the ever-increasing trauma to the body all intensified as the hours dragged on. 
Now, in addition to being physically drained with all of his major joints being twisted unnaturally and his desire to live melting away, in verse 15, Jesus continues describing the toll on his body that being crucified was making. He says that his strength is dried up and that his tongue cleaves to his mouth. Meaning what? Meaning that his vitality, it's gone. His life juices have dried up so that he is completely dehydrated. That's why his tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth. And that's why in the Gospel of John, we read that while on the cross, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And as one Bible teacher noted, the irony, he said, of all of this is that he who created the rivers and lakes and who freely gives the water of life, he thirsted while on the cross. That is the irony. And then notice something fascinating, interesting, critical, significant concerning what Jesus says about his approaching death. He says, and you lay me in the dust of death. Now, who is he referring to? Who is the you that Jesus is talking to and referring to? Well, it's none other than God the Father. This is the one he's been speaking to in prayer while on the cross. This, this is a prayer of Jesus to God the Father. And now he's telling him something that is incredibly profound because while he's describing what the heartless Roman soldiers have been doing to him and killing him by crucifixion, here Jesus acknowledges, note this, that ultimately it is God who is putting him to death. You're the one doing this. That's exactly what he means when he says, you lay me in the dust of death. Men may be carrying out the execution, but you, God, you, you're the one responsible for sending me to the grave. This is your eternal sovereign plan for my life. And folks, this is exactly what the Bible teaches. This is exactly what the Old Testament says. This is exactly what the New Testament says about the death of Christ. Those sinful men physically put Jesus to death God was the one who ordained this death in just this way. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 4, he was smitten by God. A few verses later in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And in the New Testament, we read these words by the Apostle Peter, Acts 2, 23. This man, he's referring to Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge doesn't simply mean God knew ahead of time. It means he foreordained this to happen. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. God is the one who planned the death of Christ. God is the one who ordained this that he would die this way and for this purpose. And now having spoken of the terrible effects of crucifixion upon his body and the horrific physical and emotional condition it left him in, in verse 16, Jesus returns to telling us about the Roman soldiers and the evil things they did to him. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So having already compared the Roman soldiers to strong bulls, roaring lions, Jesus now says they're like a pack of wild scavenger dogs circling around him, howling and barking, ready to pounce on him and kill him. And what these ferocious dog-like Roman soldiers did to him was they pierced his hands and his feet. Now this is obviously a reference to the piercing that took place 
in the crucifixion as long iron nails, more like today's railroad spikes, were driven through the hands, actually the wrist area, and feet of Jesus. And what makes this so fascinating is that in David's day, note this, in David's day, crucifixion did not exist. It hadn't been invented yet. It wouldn't be invented for another 500 years before the Persians actually came up with the thought of crucifixion as a method of execution. But listen, they did it differently than the Romans. You see, because the Persians believed that earth, fire, and water, they believed that these were sacred elements, and because of that, they refused to execute anyone by using any of these sacred elements. So they developed crucifixion as a way to execute people in order to avoid the use of earth, fire, or water. And the way they did this was horrible, The way they did this was by impaling their victims on a pole and raising them high above the earth where they were just left there to die. However, it was the Romans who came along and took this concept and developed it by crucifying their victims by nailing them to some wood beams across. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. And it was prophesied here in Psalm 22, note this, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented and 1,000 years before Jesus would die. And after driving the nails into him, they lifted him up on the cross. But listen, not the way that artists portray the scene with Jesus having a piece of cloth covering his private area. No, the Romans crucified their victims completely unclothed so that they were naked for all to see. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. And that's why he says in verses 17 and 18, I can count all of my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments amongst them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Apparently, the reason Jesus could count, as he says here, all of his bones is because he could see all of them since he didn't have any clothes on. And that's why he says, they stare at me. According to verse 18, the soldiers took Christ's clothing, probably his sandals, a robe, a headpiece, and a belt, and they divided it amongst themselves, probably four of them, meaning four soldiers, with one piece of clothing going to each man. However, the tunic, which is the inner garment that Jesus wore, they decided not to rip that, and so they gambled to see which of them would take it home. That is exactly what the New Testament says took place at the cross in fulfillment of prophecy. John chapter 19 verses 23 and 24 say this, then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, folks, do you realize the disgrace that Jesus endured for you? If you're a believer, he endured this disgrace for you. Not only was he rejected by the Father, insulted by Jewish bystanders, and physically tortured by the Romans, but he was subject to the most degrading form of humiliation. He was stripped naked 
and forced to hang there so that all could stare at him and gloat over his shame and embarrassment. We're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about the Holy Sinless One, naked for all to see. No wonder Hebrews 12, 2 says that though Jesus endured the cross, he despised the shame. It was a shameful thing for him to hang there naked with wicked eyes glaring and staring at him, gloating over him. See, the Romans not only tortured Jesus by crucifying him, but they stripped him of all dignity, forcing him to hang there unclothed, not only before his enemies, but before his own mother and other women. Spurgeon had this very sobering, but actually very encouraging statement about the shocking scene and the dishonor that was done to our holy Lord. He said, and I quote, let us blush for human nature and mourn in sympathy with our Redeemer's shame. The first Adam made us all naked, and therefore the second Adam became naked that he might clothe our naked souls. And folks, that's exactly what God does for the person who turns to him in repentance and faith. He clothes us with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. You and I have no righteousness of our own. We have broken God's laws continuously. But Jesus Christ, in living on this earth, perfectly obeyed the law of God. And when a person turns to Christ for salvation, God takes the righteousness of Christ, which he attained for us, and not only does he forgive our sins, but he places that righteousness on our account. It's what we call imputed righteousness. It's put on our account. It's his righteousness, but that's how God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ though we have none of our own forgiven of all of our sins the only question is have you been clothed with Christ's righteousness has this happened to you it's not something you feel it's something you know by faith because you've placed your trust in Christ alone for your salvation have you turned to him have you trusted him to be your savior your lord if so then you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ though he became naked for you He has clothed you. If you believe that his death was for your sins and you trust his death for your eternal salvation, then as I say, you have been forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed, will ever commit, and God takes the righteousness of Christ and places it on your account. That's his grace. And if you already know the Savior, then I trust, I pray that our study today has given you a new appreciation of Christ's love for you, that he would endure such physical pain, such humiliation, such disgrace and shame in order to save your wretched soul and my wretched soul. And may this new appreciation of his suffering, may it result in greater obedience, greater devotion, greater commitment to him, greater service for him. He died for us so that we might live for him. And part of your obedience to Jesus is to come to what the Bible calls the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or sometimes referred to as communion with a thankful heart, with a praising heart, with an adoring heart, remembering Christ's death on your behalf, confessing any sin, repenting of any sin that that you might be involved in now. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a few 
moments, a few minutes to talk to the Lord. And in this time of talking, ask the Lord if there's any sin that you need to be made aware of, that you need to confess and repent of, as well as time for you to praise Him, to thank Him for the disgrace He bore out of love for you. Now, if you're not a believer, then you don't need to take the elements. It's not for you. And if you're a believer who will not repent of sin, then don't take the elements. But our desire is that you would first repent so that you can take the elements. So let's, let's be quiet before the Lord as we speak to him. writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's exactly what we're doing today. There's no sanctification going on here. It's just obedience and coming to him, remembering him. So let's Let's pray and then we'll partake of the bread. Our Lord, we thank you. We, we have read about the most shameful thing that has ever taken place. Your death on our behalf. The disgrace you bore. It's such an embarrassment to even think about this. But you did this because you loved us. And you wanted us to be with you in, in glory. You didn't need us. You're perfectly complete without us, but you chose to love us, not because we're a lovely people, but because your love. Lord, we thank you. We'll be thanking you for all of eternity, but we praise you and thank you here. And we're so grateful that you did this with us in mind. Not, not an impersonal world, but individuals. You chose us, you drew us to yourself, and you died on our behalf, and you suffered like this. And Lord, all we can do is say thank you, Thank you, thank you. May we live for you, you who died for us. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Jesus, God's own Son. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving.
us your Son, and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, all for sinners slain. Thank you, my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see His face. There I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. Thank you, my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll partake of the cup. Lord, we thank you that as we look into this cup, we see it symbolizes the new covenant, the covenant that forgives us of our sins, the covenant that transforms us, that gives us a new heart. Lord, we're so grateful for without the shedding of your blood, there is no remission of sin. Lord, we're, we're, so, we're so grateful that you did it and you did it this way. And we recognize it was God the Father who put you to death. But you, you went willingly and you tell us very clearly in John 10 that no man took your life. You willingly gave it up for you are the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. So Lord, we partake of this cup with thanksgiving, praise, adoration for you. In your name we ask this. Amen. And let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege we've had of looking into your word, hearing your voice through the scriptures, Lord, the timeless truths of the word of God. And Lord, it's a sobering passage of scripture to study, to read, to teach, to receive. May it result in, Lord, a great work of grace in our lives. May we be so grateful for all that you've done for us that we express that gratitude by living for you. 
We do indeed pray, Lord, if there's been any here without Christ, that you'll draw them to yourself. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.